Welcome back to the show. You are listening to Talking Your Way to Change, the podcast that educates you about optimal mental health and psychotherapy. I am the host, Dr. Banker, and I'm coming to you from Minneapolis, Minnesota. If you are enjoying Talking Your Way to Change, thanks for tuning in. Please consider subscribing to the show. Subscribing is one of the ways for me to reach broader audiences. Also, if you think the content is worthwhile, share it with a friend. I am practicing my social media skills, and you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Now, let's get into today's episode. You're listening to Talking Your Way to Change, a podcast that explores psychotherapy and mental health issues. I am your host, Zan Banker. Today, I will be talking to Dr. Groningue about dialectical behavioral therapy. Dr. Groningue is an experienced psychologist and supervisor. He is driven by his passion for DBT and other empirically supported treatments. He takes pride in providing high quality care to clients who are suffering. His passion for helping others can be traced back to adolescence when he often played the role of therapist to friends and then in college where he was able to begin understanding how to help others in a professional setting. Welcome to the show, Joe. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you, Zan. It's really great to be here. It's good to see you, and I'm excited to share more information about DBT. Great. Um, I had looked up that I think we first crossed paths at Neighborhood Involvement Program, yes. which was, I looked at my resume 20 years ago. I know. So <laughs> I guess we're getting older. Um, one of the reasons that I like to have clinicians come on the show and talk about their style of therapy or their services is that it seems like, you know, there's not just a one shoe fits all in terms of therapy. I mean, it's sort of like when your doctor tells you, you know, you really need to work out or maybe get some counseling. It seems like it's really hard for people to kind of piece those pieces together and try to figure out, oh, yeah, what do I need and what do these letters or acronyms mean? And um, and I'm hoping that just sort of providing this education to the community, people can make a better decision about what style of therapy would be right for them. So I really appreciate that. Um, I think it just seems wise for you to kind of tell us a little bit about yourself as a clinician, uh, maybe your areas of specialty, and, um, and then maybe kind of getting into the interest in DBT. Sure. So I'm a clinician who does prefer to practice using empirically supported treatments. Um, I have a preference for those because I find that these types of treatments are easier for clients to really grab hold of and use in a practical way. Um, but, you know, I'm also a clinician who really emphasizes the role of the relationship in therapy too, which is something that I think is really important when you're trying to teach anyone new skills or try to help them reduce their suffering. And that emphasis on the relationship can actually be traced back to our time together back at Neighborhood Involvement Program and the influence that I received there from all of the really talented clinicians with whom we worked. Um, but my um, you know, current practice kind of revolves around a few different things. I, I really enjoy working with 
folks who really struggle regulating emotions, which is you know where my interest in DBT comes in. But I also work a great deal with post-traumatic stress disorder, um, along with obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, and along the way, I've also picked up some competency in working with addiction. And I've really, really enjoyed working with that population. Um, especially because I find that they're so easily marginalized. Um, and so I just, I feel like I can really understand that experience and enjoy my work with them. But along the way, I've really enjoyed working with folks in the LGBTQ plus community. I'm part of that community. And so I just feel really motivated and passionate about helping those folks too. Um, but my, my interest in DBT really started back in 2006 in my postdoctoral fellowship. I, I just kind of happened upon DBT by mistake because it was... Because you were sort of, of uh, yeah, sorry to break in, but you were sort of CBT, right? Cognitive Behavioral yep. Therapy? Okay, yes. Yep. And in 2006, um, it was part of the training experience that I had that exposed me to DBT. And I really just resonated with it so quickly because um, of its foundation in research and how effectively I saw that it could help clients reduce suffering from very severe symptoms. So over time, I just sought out ways to deepen my understanding through things like training, reading and, and making sure that I was practicing in environments where my colleagues were equally as enthusiastic about DBT as I was. Wonderful. Um, what, where I'm thinking about where, where to go next. I, in, in preparing for this interview, I was thinking, you know, I, in more sort of casual settings or social settings, I've and say, oh, my next, the next interview I have coming up is dialectical behavioral therapy. And it was, and I found that it was really hard for me to figure out how to explain that. And so I was like, okay, when you are at a, a party, a social event, and people ask you about DBT, like, is, <laughs> do you have like a simple way of talking about it? And then I would love to hear what you would actually say to a potential client. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll kind of, give you my elevator pitch because, there you go. Elevator pitch. <laughs> because it's the manuals that are associated with this therapy there's two of them and they're thick yes and so i i absolutely understand your plight in trying to explain this um so my elevator pitch goes as as follows dbt is a therapy that involves two different types of modalities occurring at the same time. There's individual therapy and there's group therapy. Each of these two things occur once a week. And group therapy is where you learn the skills and individual therapy is where you learn how to apply the skills. So this is a very skills-driven treatment and it involves learning four sets of skills. Number one, mindfulness. Mindfulness skills are considered core. They allow us to open our awareness, focus our attention, and without them, we're kind of lost, wandering about in the dark. Mindfulness skills allow us to turn on that light. Then we have distress tolerance skills. Distress tolerance skills are generally skills that allow us to tolerate really intense emotions without engaging in the impulsive behaviors that often accompany those intense emotions. 
And then we have another set of skills are called emotion regulation skills. These skills are used to regulate kind of the daily mild to moderate emotions that we would typically experience, but do so in a way that allows us to not react and regret our decisions later, but able to successfully regulate emotions in the long run, maybe for chronic problems or chronic situations that are present in our lives. And then finally, we have interpersonal effectiveness skills. Now, interpersonal effectiveness skills are generally considered to be relationship skills. These help us to get what we want more often in a relationship. So group is not like a typical therapy group that you might see in the movies. Um, it's more of a classroom, and I actually refer to it most often as a skills class where in skills class, everyone sits down. The focus is on skills, not as much on problems. There's a lot of teaching that goes on and it feels a little bit generic in that everyone is learning the same thing every week. But then in individual therapy is where your therapist will help you take what you're learning in your skills class and apply it to your unique life's problems. And that's where the therapy is more individualized. In the skills group class, how many weeks is that generally? I mean, or it does that sort of ongoing for years or months, or is it like 10 weeks or? Yeah, so DBT is generally considered to be a year long treatment. It takes about six months to cycle through all of the skills and learn each of them one time. Okay. But the therapy is set up such that everyone goes through the skills a second time around, and that's very purposeful. More often than not, I hear clients talk about how the second time they go through this lesson, their lives have changed or they've grown so much in their ability to use other skills and gain so many more insights that the second time they learn the skill, it's like they're applying it on another level. And so it's really helpful to go through skills a second time so that clients can kind of understand additional ways that they can apply that particular skill. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, if I'm a client, so I would be going to the skills group once a week and then I would be seeing my individual therapist. Are, so as I learn a skill, do I apply that skill to my current problems that I'm presenting with? Yes, and Sometimes there might not be very obvious situations or problems in which a client might apply that particular skill. Correct. So that okay. skill might not get used very frequently, but often there are many opportunities in which the client can use their skills that they're using. That said, individual therapy can also be a forum where clients can be taught skills and be kind of fast forwarded through some of the material as needed. So there's the opportunity to tailor acquisition of the skills depending on the needs of the client. Okay. When it, one more question about the, the groups. Are in the group, are people talking about like their particular personal, it, issues or the content or is it the focus more didactic like a classroom where you're sort of getting an education about the skill? Clients will talk about their problems but only in the context of using a skill. So the structure of a skills group goes like this. We'll start out the first 10 minutes um, to go doing a mindfulness activity. 
That's meant to okay. help focus our attention and kind of settle us in the room. Then we'll turn to doing homework review. Now, every single client goes around the group, reviews the homework that was assigned from the skills lesson of the previous week. So here is where they might mention a specific problem, but again, okay. only in the context of how they used the skill to try to solve that problem or regulate that emotion. And so it's a very brief explanation of the problem with a much lengthier explanation of how they use the skill. Then we'll take a break. And the second half of group will be used purely for didactic purposes. It's all teaching. Now, there's of course, there's a lot of discussion that happens over the course of that teaching, um, but that's that's how group is, is laid out. And typically, how long are those groups? It depends on where you go. A lot of clinics will do two hour groups. Um, very rarely I'll see 90 minute groups. Um, my clinic where I work, Minnesota Center for Psychology, we do two and a half hour groups. Okay. And then the individual session, is that a norm? Is that like a typical individual psychotherapy session about an hour, 50 minutes to an hour? Yeah, yeah, you got it. Okay. Well, now I would just want to back up a little bit, but I think that's kind of helpful for people to hear. And, and, and so really what you're talking about is you're talking about some, some well-researched data information that's very structured that gets shared with clients about how to go about approaching, you know, your, your emotions or this issue with regulating emotions and maybe how that might apply to the client's presenting issue, whatever that might be. Absolutely, you know, and again, that's one of the reasons why I really like this therapy is because it's very tangible. You can really sink your teeth into it because these are concrete skills. And Marsha Linehan, the creator of this therapy, um, is really open about how she developed this therapy simply by pouring over the research, the literature. Yes, yes. And taking out those things that had high effectiveness or efficacy and incorporating them into her treatment. So a lot of her treatment ended up being very behavioral because behavioral treatments and interventions are typically easier researched. But if you look at the, the therapy, there's also kind of some elements of, of some you know, feminist kinds of things and even relational kinds of things woven into um, how we work with clients. And so um, it's a very kind of comprehensive treatment that way as well. Yes, yes, I would agree. Okay, so one of the things that um, I was thinking about in terms of DBT is I particularly love the concept of um, some of the, like the philosophy parts of it. Um, like it, it feels like it's addressing behavior it's addressing this mindfulness piece, and then mm -hmm. it's also addressing dialectics, right? Or it may, it may, yeah, like it's so it's sort of like CBT. <laughs> I mean, it's CBT and adding the body and maybe this other. I don't know. It's almost like a spiritual or or a relational component that. Um, that two opposing truths could be happening at the same time, right? We're like, I feel like a little bit more in CBT, we might be trying to chisel away or create a new truth, or it's like, well, you have this truth, but we might want to help you change that and develop a more adaptive truth. 
where DBT um, is sort of like, I want to change and I don't want to change. You know, I, I, I like this and I don't like this or whatever. And I was wondering if you could just talk about that a little bit or. Yeah, absolutely. Pillars, you know, to the DBT. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head when you kind of describe the DBT kind of has some three major treatment components to it. Um, it's, it's behaviorism, it's classic kind of cognitive behavioral theory, which has a lot of very robust research outcomes when they're therapeutically applied to many forms of mental illness. Um, and they're very easy to understand. So for example, if I grew up in a home um, that you know only provided me with the attention I needed if I became emotionally dysregulated. Well, then I'm going to learn that becoming dysregulated is how I get my needs met. That's the behavioral, behavioral principle of reinforcement. So now as an adult, that's how I'm getting my needs met. So the therapy teaches clients how to analyze their behavior and then teaches them new behaviors in the form of skills so that they can, for example, get their needs met in ways that don't involve having to become emotionally dysregulated. So that's the behaviorism kind of aspect of it. Um, and then there are mindfulness principles overlaid on top of that. And, um, you know, principles of mindfulness practice were not developed by Marshall Linehan, but rather taken by Marshall Linehan from Zen Buddhism. And this was as a result of her own desire to learn more about what was happening in the research at the time, which was suggesting that mindfulness practices were seeing promising results when applied to symptoms of depression and anxiety. And so in examining the spiritual practices of Buddhists, people have been able to define specific behavioral practices which DBT teaches as skills. So in DBT, mindfulness is used as an essential moderator in behavior change and solving problems. Like I said kind of before, imagine if you were in a dark room with furniture all around you and you needed to walk across that room. Mindfulness, with its ability to help us open our awareness and focus our attention, acts as a light switch. It allows us to see every piece of furniture in our environment and see ourselves in order to make the changes that we're looking to make. And then dialectics, your favorite part, mm -hmm. are kind of the third component. Um, and dialectics is a concept taken from philosophy, which essentially states that two opposite things can be true at the same time, and that these dialectics are present in just about every aspect of our experience, but we don't necessarily realize it. Um, for example, every relationship involves both love and hate existing simultaneously. So, for example, I love my husband and I might think he's perfect and he's the greatest until he does something that disappoints me and then I hate him and he's the worst. Um, life becomes lived in these all or nothing extremes and can be the cause of a lot of distress as a result of having to pick one or the other being stuck in such an extreme kind of state. So DBT teaches us, um, you know, to be able to embrace both extremes, to simultaneously be in both sides of that same coin, 
And it just really means being able to embrace the entire truth or reality of a situation. This then leads to some alleviation of distress. Yeah, I feel like as well, I think a couple a couple thoughts is I feel like this is sort of where the magic is, right? Like sometimes it's even hard for me to sort of be suspended as a therapist and know that this exists. It's like I have to yes. tell myself that's right, because people come in and they are sort of they or there's a conflict. You know, who is right? Who is wrong? What should I do? There's an answer. And it's sort of like, well, both are true. You are sick of your job and you feel like it's sucking the life force energy out of you. And it's you're also able to provide for your family and, you know, and then that piece of but what can you do to change? Right. It's like. And um, it seems like when people can grasp this, somehow another solution does come up. Mm -hmm. Or like what you said, you just stop kind of creating more suffering in it or something or like by accepting it. Well, it allows us to create a whole big swath of gray area between the black and white. And within that gray area, just as you said, other options or solutions can appear once we're able to see less in black and white and more in the gray. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, and sometimes I'm like, and if nothing else, you have the freedom to move on. Like, like I was thinking about Gottman's research in terms of couples and that every couple has like, I don't know if it's like four to six uh, conflicts that they, they are unresolvable. It's more about learning how to sort of live with that conflict. It's like, yep, we disagree about money and we probably always will. So let's move on or like, let's put this, my energy into something else. Yes, let's be able to live with both people having truths that might be in conflict and just allow that conflict to exist without resolution. However, that said, one of the things that dialectics also teaches us is that change is always occurring, which is good news, because if 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 time is always marching forward and change is always progressing, then there's always the possibility that down the road change could happen. For now, though, in this moment, change is not possible. Yes, yes, right. That's the piece that exactly what you're talking about there. That's sometimes hard to hold on to. Right. Yes. That yes, that Hope change will too. happen. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. Um, so tell I was thinking it might even be helpful for you to talk a little bit about uh, borderline personality disorder or that that type of personality configuration and how, you know, DBT, I think, first started because it was a effective with working with this issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, DBT was originally created, um, and Marshall Linehan writes about this, um, for chronically suicidal individuals. That was her goal, to develop a therapy for that group of folks. Um, and people with borderline personality disorder often experience chronic suicidality as part of their symptom cluster. And so Marshall Linehan has, you know, has spoken about how this is just a natural place to start her research. Now, since starting that research um, over the past few years, she's been more vocal about and kind of come out as someone who has borderline personality disorder herself. Um, but borderline personality disorder involves, um, you know, generally 
uh, difficulty regulating emotions. Um, and with that is kind of particular experience where clients will um, become um, more emotionally activated easier than maybe the typical person. So the example I give clients is um, you walk out into the parking lot and you see that you have a flat tire and every person would experience maybe a range of emotions, sadness, frustration, um, maybe a little bit of anxiety. How am I going to get this tire fixed? Someone with borderline personality disorder experiences those emotions at just a higher intensity. And so where someone might feel frustrated, someone with borderline personality disorder might get angry or someone might be nervous about what do I do next? Someone with borderline personality disorder might start to get genuinely afraid and panicked about what to do. And, you know, people talk about, you know, um, this disorder, or at least I talk about this disorder, um, similar to how one talks about diabetes, you know, diabetes involves an organ, the pancreas, not secreting um, the type of chemicals it needs in order to regulate blood sugar. Same thing in borderline personality disorder. The brain just isn't manufacturing the kind of chemicals it needs to regulate emotion. And so as a result, these folks have higher intensity emotions and it's a slower return to a lower emotional level. And so we call this in DBT a particular kind of vulnerability to emotion or emotion vulnerability. So that's kind of one of the hallmarks of DBT. And, and in addition, um, clients will experience particular deficits or difficulties in regulating anger. Um, and then as a result of that difficulty regulating emotions, another symptom is impulsive behavior, but a tendency toward impulsive behavior that tends to be self-damaging, kind of shooting themselves in the foot accidentally. So um, these kinds of self-damaging impulsive behaviors could be things like impulsive spending, impulsive sexual behavior, um, reckless driving even. But then in relationships, there tends to be kind of a particular relational style that someone with borderline personality disorder might engage in. There tends to be a fear of abandonment, um, often due to some early childhood experiences or trauma, not always, but often. But this fear of abandonment is ten, tends to be characterized then as an adult by engaging in behaviors to try to avoid that abandonment. So someone with borderline personality disorder might do a lot of self-sacrificing to their own detriment as a way of trying to maintain a relationship. They might completely invalidate their own needs, go without as a way of, of keeping someone with them. This, this kind of way of, of kind of really going the extra mile to try to keep a relationship going is kind of one of the hallmark features of borderline personality disorder. But another one, again, often in the context of relationships, is a way in which people with the disorder tend to look at all or nothing black and white in relationships in terms of how they value that relationship. So uh, the example that I gave with, with my husband, he's great, I love him, he's the best, he does something that disappoints me, and I hate him the worst. Um, that kind of pendulum swing 
in how we value relationships is something that people with borderline personality disorder tend to experience. But then there's also other symptoms, as I was saying, um, a tendency towards suicidal thinking and behavior, also self-injury. Sometimes there can be some cognitive symptoms that can occur with borderline personality disorder, dissociation, where people start to feel divorced from their own body or as though the world around them is not real. Um, some other cognitive symptoms might be some paranoid thinking, believing that people are conspiring to hurt them, um, even though that's not happening in reality. So this kind of cluster of symptoms um, tends to occur for folks. There's two other symptoms, which are, are a general feeling or chronic feeling of emptiness inside. Also a general feeling of not knowing who you are as a person. Your morals, your values might feel cloudy or might change depending on the situation that you're in or the people that you're around. So in total, there's nine symptoms of borderline personality disorder. Not everyone experiences every symptom, but you know, if you're kind of listening to this and checking off a lot of these boxes, it might be helpful to talk to a professional about whether or not these symptoms represent borderline personality disorder, or they might represent something else. Because as you know, in mental health, um, there can be one kind of symptom experience that could check the boxes in five different psychological disorders. And so it's a process of understanding which disorder someone is experiencing. Yeah, I was thinking about that. I That was a great explanation, I think. Um, that you have this like mood regulation problem, which some people might say, oh, I feel depressed or I have anxiety. And then you have this almost um, the emotional vulnerability or emotional sensitivity, which I think we used to sort of think only, you know, mostly came from environment. But now I think there's more research that says that, I mean, you could have borderline personality disorder and your parents could have been great and nurturing and kind and warm in there, right? You got it, you got um, it. And so that, that seems to have a biological piece, which seems similar to me as trauma, like what ends, trauma ends up doing doing to folks in terms of like, I'm either hyper-regulated and hyper-intense or I'm under-regulated. Like it's hard for me to sort of stay in this like window of, I guess they call it window of tolerance, right? Where mm -hmm. I'm alert enough and I'm engaged enough to want to set goals, like go to school, go to work. Um, I'm not at, at home depressed in bed, not wanting to get out. And I'm also not running around the city, spending all my money. Um, yes. So, you know, the other thought I had is that I could see where this type of therapy would be really um, kind of really grounding for someone with this because it's like, okay, it feels like it's really reality-based, like I'm with other people, I, I have a paper and pen, <laughs> I'm writing, I'm taking notes, I'm getting worksheets, there are books, there's science behind it, but then I'm also, there's other people, I'm not the only one, and then the individual attention with the therapist, and it happens over a year so that person could really internalize yeah. the type of change that they need because I, I, I would think that there's a lot of behavior that these folks might have that maybe initially do in the beginning of therapy that maybe if they saw another therapist it they would be terminated or maybe it, the therapy wouldn't even take off 
Yeah, I think you really hit on something that a lot of clients um, state in the therapy, which is, and I'm paraphrasing, oh, finally, this has been the missing piece. This is what I've needed. Are these concrete skills where I can use them on a daily basis and they make meaningful changes? And, you know, I work a lot with folks who struggle with addiction. And that is a very common phrase that I hear from them coming out of maybe multiple um, inpatient treatment settings throughout their life is this is the missing piece. This is how I needed to be learning to regulate my emotions and my behavior in an effective way. It wasn't just about the chemical use. It was about how my emotions were intersecting with my chemical use. Yeah, why don't we just jump in for a second and give the listeners an idea of some of these skills? Like, maybe you could you could teach me one right now. I'd be happy to be a client or any of your favorites. Absolutely. You know, um, I'm going to, I think I'm going to walk through a skill that is often used to reduce the intensity of really intense body activation. Okay. Really intense, that would be maybe fear, anger. It's called paired muscle relaxation. Okay. So this is taken, um, again, Marshall and him very open about, you know, taking these skills from the research. If you're familiar with something called progressive muscle relaxation, very, very similar. All we're going to be doing is choosing to tense and release muscles. And we're going to be paying attention to the sensations in our body as we do it okay great so we're going to be tensing our muscles in a minute for a count of seven and then releasing them for a count of five okay, okay. so let's just start with our feet we're going to work our way from bottom to the top okay so, so go ahead and squeeze all the muscles in your toes and the arches of your feet one squeezing. two three four five, six, seven. Now relax those same muscles and notice any sensations that are occurring. Pay attention to what's happening in your feet. We're gonna move up to our calves. Squeeze our calf muscles as tight as we can. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Relax. Notice any sensations that are occurring in those muscles. The goal here is to bring attention to the body and how it feels to relax. Move your way up into your thighs <clears throat> with your thigh muscles. Contract those as best you can. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Relax. Notice that and move up into your abdominal muscles. Squeeze and tense your stomach as best you can. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Relax. Now with your arms, we're going to do the whole arms and the, the hands at the same time. Go ahead and squeeze your biceps. You're making a muscle, squeeze your fists. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, relax. 
Now, of course, if you have any medical problems, problems with your neck or back, you need to adjust any kind of tensing you do here to your neck or back. Maybe you don't want to participate in this, but if you feel confident in your neck or your back, go ahead and see if you can move your shoulder blades back and back of you. See if you can make them touching. Squeeze those back muscles together. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Relax. Notice any sensations that are occurring back there in your back. Bring your shoulders up as high as you can without causing any pain or injury. Squeezing one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Relax. We're going to go to the face. You're going to scowl, clench your jaw, tighten your face as much as you can. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and relax. So now you just take note, look at your body. Check what's going on for you. Do you feel more relaxed than when you started? Does I this, do. Do you feel the sensation kind of running through your body or in different parts of your body? That's really the goal is to be able to relax the body from being very physically activated with emotion because as you know emotion is primarily experienced in the body and so if we have skills that allow us to target how we're experiencing that emotion in the body it can really facilitate some meaningful regulation of that emotion okay so if if i if i'm a client and i have an maybe an urge like the emotion I have the urge that I want to like call someone and tell them off or get upset right or I want I mean somehow there's some slight and I and so I do this a, skill a right? very common urge that we all right. have <laughs> right. so I do this skill what if I still want to do that the behavior that I'm trying to avoid great in those situations, we have really a buffet of other skills that we can choose from. So there's other skills, something called distract, which allows you to select from any activity you want, using your mindfulness skills to throw yourself into that activity so that you can just completely immerse yourself in something else to distract you. Um, we also have other skills that are in the realm. Okay, I'm just going to stop you for a second. So like, would uh, that be something like, oh, I'm going to play um, solitaire or something on my computer for 10 minutes and then I'll re-decide yep. if I'm going to blow yep. up at this person. Absolutely. Call this person. It can be solitaire okay. on your computer. It can be playing with your dog. It can be putting together a puzzle okay. with the goal being that you, if you're going to play solitaire, you are going to play the best darn game of solitaire anyone has ever played and completely throw yourself into it. Okay. Same with your dog. If you're going to play with your dog, then you are going to really play. You are going to jump around. You are going to, you know, kiss that dog, let it lick your face okay. so that you can completely dive into the experience, thereby making it more distracting. So I'm not sitting there kind of practicing the what I'm going to say to the person as I play the card game, right? I that's Correct. what I don't want to do, right? Like that's I'm not rehearsing 
<laughs> right. the, the dialogue that I'm going to have when I pick exactly. up the coin and yell at them. Right. And okay. that's where the mindfulness skills come in. That's where mindfulness is considered core because unless I'm focusing my attention on playing that solitaire game or playing with my dog, my brain is going to naturally want to drift back to that thing that is causing me problem. And so mindfulness skills are used to help focus our attention where it needs to be focused. Okay. So as we're coming to the end of our time, I was thinking about asking you about what um, that you find the most challenging in working with DBT and what you love most about working with DBT? Yeah. Um, I think the most challenging part about providing DBT as a therapist is that it's a highly technical therapy to practice. Um, as I said before, that the treatment manuals are the thickest I've ever seen, so it took a while, years really, until I really felt like I had a solid grasp of the therapy and could implement the interventions as fluidly as I wanted to. Um, the things that I enjoy most about the therapy are it just tends to work pretty well for most people. And so I get to see my clients make really meaningful change, which is very rewarding as the therapist. And so seeing that change just keeps rewarding me and propelling me to continue to do the therapy, you know, since since 2006, really. So it's it's really kept me going doing the therapy, seeing how great um, of a change it can create. Yes, I would agree. I mean, in terms of just sort of what I hear as a clinician um, from other clinicians or clients that if a person gets themselves to a DBT therapist and does the work, it will work. Whether or not, you know, that a person can get there and do the work, that's another issue. But once they're on board, I would say you really see great results. Yes, and, and you know, all therapists, I think, enjoy watching their clients achieve their goals, right? That's one of the reasons why we become therapists and clients go to therapy to achieve their goals. So everyone wins. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I am not a DBT therapist and I've only taken a few of the trainings, but I definitely um, utilize these principles or skills all the time. Like most people, I mean, you can just use it in your personal life too. I mean, learning how to regulate your emotions is a really important thing. Well, and that's an ongoing joke between a lot of therapists who practice DBT is if only, if only I would have known these things when I yes. was growing up or I incorporate these skills in my life now and my life feels like it's being better lived as a result. That's something that is frequently commented upon. <laughs> you know, I, I think it is starting. I was looking at this um, social emotional uh, curriculum in some of the schools and they had the tip suggestion in there, which is that diving reflex. I don't know if you you teach that one, but I was like, you've got yes. to be kidding me. That's told that's from DBT. Yeah, that's where yes. you change your body temperature, right? Quickly. Another very rapid way to regulate your body and how it's experiencing the emotion from being so highly activated. That's wonderful to hear. I I, if I find that, I'll send it to you. So do you have any suggestions for people if they're interested in learning a little bit more about DBT where they could look? Absolutely. So um, I know this is going to sound a 
bit corny, but Marshall Linehan does such an excellent job of making this therapy so um, available to, to clients. So I would actually recommend picking up the DBT skills training manual. Um, and you can read through it and, and literally there, the skills are right there. Now in skills group, we expand upon what's, you know, the content of that that manual, but it's very face valid. It's very accessible just to read through some of the, the handouts. And there are worksheets that accompany those handouts that allow you to walk through the implementation of that skill and do your own practice. So, you know, reading through those skills can be really helpful. Um, other clients, you know, have talked about, you know, not necessarily um, DBT specific, but other clients who struggle to regulate their emotions or struggle in relationships will comment on a book called The Buddha and the Borderline, um, which is uh, a woman's account of her experience with borderline personality disorder. But also, Marsha Linehan has a memoir out um, about her life's journey, including how she developed um, DBT. It's called Building a Life Worth Living. And in there, she discusses, um, you know, how what her own process was and her experience of her symptoms, and clients have found that to be quite validating as well because I think it lends a little bit of street credibility to the therapy. You know, this wasn't someone who was detached as a researcher at a university developing this therapy. This is someone who has been there. Yes has gotten herself out of hell or whatever. Exactly. However, however yep, you that's want how she describes it. She does. Yeah, I, I think I, I was I did go to one of her trainings and I remember her talking about that. Um, let's see. And how can people get a hold of you if, if, if you're taking clients or just your clinic or wherever you or if you'd be open to people just talking to you or sending you an email or whatever well, you're open if, to? Yeah, you know, um, I, I am taking on new clients for dialectical behavior therapy. However, only if they also have a co-occurring substance use disorder. That's kind of my niche is okay. working with people who struggle to regulate their emotions and have a substance use disorder simultaneously. Um, and you know, my last name is really unique, so people can <laughs> can just Google me Google. and they'll find me. Um, but I'm I'm currently working at Minnesota Center for Psychology. Um, and my last name is spelled G-R-O-N-I-N-G-A. The number to the clinic is 651-644-4100. You can also find me on psychologytoday.com. Oh, that's right. <laughs> well, this has just been wonderful. It's been so nice to reconnect. And I feel like the Joe that I really appreciated then is the Joe that's here today too. And that is... I feel like you have a, such a nice balance between, you know, using your intelligence and wanting empirically validated treatments and at the same time balancing that with uh, relationship and relatability. So thank well, you so much. Well, thank you for having me, Zan. I really, really enjoyed being able to connect with you again as well. Thanks. Thanks for joining us this week on Talking Your Way to Change. You can also visit our Facebook page. You can subscribe to the show on Anchor or iTunes so that you never miss an episode.
If you found value in this show, we would appreciate a ratings on iTunes, or you could just simply tell a friend. I need to alert everyone that this podcast is not meant as a substitution for mental health treatment. So although the podcast deals with psychotherapy, this is not your psychotherapy. Okay, thanks for listening. Until next time, this is Dr. Banker.